This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. So anyway, let's get to it. Nellie Bowles is here. This is not a drill. So we're both in our closets, uh, closed closets, matching energy. I love it. So that's coming up. And I can already tell this is going to be my favorite episode of the show. We're going to talk about a ton of great stuff. But to set the stage for all of that, I want to talk about freedom. The exodus from Egypt is probably the most important narrative in the history of liberty. I mean, just in American history alone, it directly inspired the American Revolution, the Underground Railroad, the Civil Rights Movement, just to name three things that have a capital R in them. So it seems incomprehensible that almost immediately after gaining their freedom, the Israelites surrender it. They travel to Mount Sinai and they're given a whole bunch of rules and responsibilities, most famously the Ten Commandments, none of which appear to be optional. And in fact, Jewish tradition went out of its way to play up this tension. So the Talmud, this ancient repository of great Jewish wisdom, has this ancient legend that when the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai, God lifted up the mountain over their heads and said, either accept my commandments or I'll bury you right here. So God basically Don Corleone the Israelites into accepting the Ten Commandments. And wouldn't this mean the Talmud then goes on to wonder that the Jews shouldn't really have to obey God's commands since they were imposed under duress? And the Talmud answers that the Jewish people did eventually choose freely to accept God's covenant. But the fact remains that the original moment at Sinai was a reversal of the Israelites' freedom, right? And the answer, of course, is that that's precisely the point. In fact, what the revelation at Mount Sinai introduced to civilization was the idea that there is no true freedom without obligation. And that's what George Washington meant in his farewell address to the nation in 1796 when he wrote, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Right? I think I got that right. Whether for, for individuals or for nations, for the book of Exodus or the American experiment, true freedom isn't about running away from something. It's running towards something. It's about securing for ourselves the ability to freely ask, what kind of society do we want to build together? And what responsibilities do we have to bring it into being? So what obligations do we have as Americans, as members of a community, perhaps as people of faith, if that's your tradition? These are the most critical questions we could ask right now. And to help me think about them, I invited to the podcast legit one of the coolest people in the world. She's a correspondent for The New York Times, author of the incredible Substack that you should all subscribe to. And believe me, I already put my money where my mouth is called Chosen by Choice, the incomparable Nellie Bowles. Nellie, thank you so much for being here. All right. It is such a pleasure and an honor to be here. And that was beautiful what you just said and how you described that. Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, I'm, as I said, I'm extremely psyched to finally have a guest who's matching my closet energy here. Um, <laughs> but I think the clothes in your closet look a little cooler. I don't know. Well, it's all down to... all practical button-downs and flannels. It's all down to Shlomi, wife of the pot. Uh, <laughs> so, Nellie, you're converting to Judaism. I am. And you're super public about it. I am. Which is awesome. First of all, I'm so excited. I'm sure you get lots of like, oh, like Jonah Ryan and Veep, right? He has this great moment where he's like about to convert to Judaism and he accuses people of having like anti-homosemitism against him. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I'm excited. Um, I've been wearing my Maginda V just waiting, just kind Heck of yeah. thinking. I, I've heard there was a lot of anti-Semitism. I don't know. Heck um, yeah. Yeah, I started converting about two years ago now. I took a Jewish 101 course, which is most reform schools offer, like major reform schools offer something like that between eight months and a year long class for people who are interested in converting. And it's a lot of like husbands and wives and or fiancés and Sorry, I should preface this by saying I met my fiance, Barry, and... Barry Weiss. People know who she is. <laughs> <laughs> and and I obviously knew that Judaism and her faith was really important to her. And I came from a context of not knowing a whole lot about Judaism. I grew up in San Francisco. I was raised Greek Orthodox. And so I started taking the class mostly just because I wanted to learn more. And I was dating this girl who I was falling in love with. And I really loved it. I really wow. loved what oh. I was learning. And the course was taught by a rabbi at a progressive shul in San Francisco called The Kitchen that is amazing, super intellectual, really smart space. And so I did that. And then that course ended. Then I met with the rabbi one-on-one, -on -one, Rabbi Noah Kushner, for a while. And now I've been doing mostly self-study and kind of deepening my knowledge, deepening my practice of Judaism and trying to learn more uh, about different parts, maybe from a little bit more of a conservative lens or even a modern Orthodox lens. And so I'm figuring that out as I go. But the blog is documenting every Thursday night a new challenge I set for myself or a new sort of topic I'm trying to wrestle with. And um, I started it mostly to keep my family and friends informed about what was going on and also for a little bit of accountability for myself of, okay, every week I have to go deeper and learn more and do another challenge. So first of all, it's incredible. So <laughs> and, and I, like long time, I mean, it hasn't been going on for that long, but long time reader, first time caller. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all, all like six weeks of it. Right. All six weeks. But it's like, you but know. But it's a good shaming device. If I don't, uh, I got to build it up so that if I don't do it one week, it's. Exactly. I'm also a supporter where I think, I think my wife is eligible for one call from you to convince her to convert to Judaism, which I'm very excited <laughs> for. <laughs> this is, well, this is my big shtick at the start right now is basically. When I learned that some like 70% of non-Orthodox Jews who marry, marry non-Jews. So right. people should like think about converting those people. Like, right? right? Like there's a yeah. lot of spouses who are marrying into Jewish households who or all of that. If it were more something that was like talked about or encouraged even, which is like my Jewish friends now think that's like the funniest thing ever to like encourage conversion. It's like, why not? Like Judaism's great. It reminds me of my favorite Simpsons episode where where Krusty finds out that he's not Jewish and then he encounters Bart and Lisa later and they ask him what's wrong and he goes, oh, I got turned <laughs> down from all those country clubs for nothing. <laughs> That's so good. Listen, I think the fact that you're converting to Judaism is amazing because, and I know this will absolutely shock my listeners, I happen to quite like Judaism, but beyond that, we're living in an era where nuns, right, N-O-N-E-S, as in people who have no religious affiliation at all, are on the rise. They now make up one-fifth of the U.S. population. And by the way, really all I want, and I don't think this is too much to ask, is for someone to write a book about, like, the characteristics of American nuns so called brilliant. The Habits of the Nuns. That's, like, my only thing that I, I almost want. wrote a book about nuns, N-O-N-E-S, <laughs> actually. I, I did a story for The Times about nuns and nuns yeah, living together. There you go. <laughs> so my millennial, actually some of my roommates in San Francisco moved into a convent, moved into a, a nunnery. Wow. Because nuns are dying off. There are a lot of extra rooms. And so these kids all moved in and started kind of getting really into it. 
Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you, right? Like, to put it mildly, those who occupy the towering heights of American culture don't look kindly on traditional religion. So what you're doing, and very publicly, is quite countercultural. So why choose traditional religion in today's culture? Like, why are the kind of people in that story you're writing getting quite into it? You can get rid of tradition, right? Like, you can scrap all the traditions you want, but traditions are answers to questions we've forgotten. Like, traditions are answers to questions we've forgotten we even had to ask, right? And so I'm a gay woman, right? And I'm glad I can buck the tradition and be that person. But also that brings in a whole series of questions and things to wrestle with that the traditional way of forming a family kind of answers. And so I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel with everything. And I don't want to have to create new rituals for every life stage. I don't think it's necessary for us to create rituals around marriage or rituals around death or rituals around birth because they're already made and they're made really well and they're tried and true. And we can obviously modify them and live within them and they should be living, breathing rituals. But like there's a model that works really well. I love it. And I'd like to be able to port some of that wisdom into my life. And I'm kind of getting myself tangled up in it because I'm both wanting that, but also obviously I live a life of enormous freedom from ritual and tradition. And so it's tricky to to balance both of those desires in me. And it's tricky to articulate it. I actually spoke about this with with Michael Brendan Doherty when we had him on the podcast, who has this phenomenal book, My Father Left Me Ireland. And one of the things we talked about was, A, what you were speaking about just now, about how you don't want to have to reinvent the wheel, but also how it's almost like presumptuous to reinvent the wheel. And I had this experience earlier in the year. Unfortunately, I lost both of my grandparents, my grandfather, my grandmother. I'm so sorry. My grandfather was like this incredible, very well-known American Jewish theologian who's mm. president of Yeshiva University, intellectual giant. Everything I know could fit in his pinky toe. And we lost him and my grandmother during COVID in very tragic ways, in ways that we couldn't, mm. where we couldn't feel like we could mourn them properly. And I remember feeling, I actually wrote something about this for Tablet, like my body like shut down when my grandfather passed away. And I remember feeling this sense of, Without tradition, without my tradition, without Jewish tradition, how could I possibly come up with anything freestyled off the top of my head that would be sufficient to mark yeah. his passing? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, they're traditions because they've been crafted over thousands of years and sort of hammered at by many hands and and a little bit bucking traditions or pretending like we don't need any of the wisdom of them. Yeah, it's presumptuous. It's saying that, like, I'm more brilliant and more different than all these humans. But like, no, I'm just like an elevated monkey. Like, I, <laughs> I I need help. I need structure. I need guidance on how to live a good life. And I don't want to spend all my time trying to piece together what that means when I think there's a pretty good system in Judaism. And And honestly, it started with me with Shabbat. Yeah, so tell me about that. What What is Shabbat like? That's the thing where I feel like I literally do not understand how anyone lives without Shabbat. And so you're experiencing I it don't either for the now. first time. Like that was, don't, tell me about it. That was the ritual that really got me at the start. And that made me realize that like giving up some of my feelings of like choice and total freedom could actually bring me pleasure and happiness and some sort of wisdom that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Shabbat for me, I mean, at first... The pleasure is just in shutting everything off and just not using your electronics and, and just like the sort of like self-help mode of digital detox, right? Like that's very good. It's really helpful for me, like an overworked 32-year-old <laughs> woman in L.A. now. But on a deeper level, 
it's sort of like, I mean, it's a metaphor for the whole thing, right? You're working on building beauty in time rather than beauty in space. So you're, the Heschel idea of the cathedral in time, which is such a Jewish idea and kind of introduced me to a Jewish way of thinking about holiness and sacredness. And then also the submission to it, that it's not broken up into six-hour chunks throughout the week, and that's how you do Shabbat. It's 25 hours starting Friday night, going until Saturday night. And it's that way because it's that way. And that was really compelling for me once it started. Like once I gave up fighting the timing issue and once I was like, okay, it is what it is. It's that way because it's that way. And then that kind of was the key for a lot of other Jewish rituals and a lot of other like, a lot of others finding freedom and giving up freedom. The truth is the biggest thing I usually have to explain about Judaism to non-Jewish friends, colleagues, what have you, is actually ritual. In other words, Mm -hmm. oftentimes what I find is uh, a good friend of mine, actually, who's very devout Christian, just explained to me today. He said, you know, I, I know so many people in my life who think that Judaism is just like Christianity, but with Moses. Um, it's like you got <laughs> you got to let Moses into your life. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's like it's just a different type of faith. Well, Christianity is all belief and Judaism is much more about ritual. Like Christianity, you can be a great Christian, especially in some of the evangelical sects and not do anything per se. It's just belief. If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior into your heart, you're good. That's it. So what is it like embracing a world of, of ritual now? But that's what I like. Love it. Like, that's what makes it, I think, so good and useful and also, like, meaningful for me because I always wrestled with the faith part of faith, with the belief part of, of it as, like, a hyper-rational person. And Judaism says, practice first do Jewish things, live Jewishly. And the faith part can come or it cannot come. You can have an atheist Jew, right? Belief and faith is not first. First is acting, is doing, is living Jewishly. It strikes me that that really speaks to the way in which even just say like the five books of Moses are constructed. You could read those and learn nothing about personal salvation, for example. Mm. It's really trying to create a community and a good society because the radical idea that the Hebrew Bible introduces to civilization is that, you know, lots of other traditions have paradise or heaven or the kingdom of the gods or Mount Olympus. But what the Bible says is that you can actually create Olympus here on earth. Mm. Um, And so it's about creating a society. And I think maybe that's where what you're describing comes in, that sense of ritual, that sense of the individual buy into this or that is not as important, you know, maybe important, but it's not as important as the idea of creating a community. Yeah. And about living in, in a tribe. Yes. So that's also a big part of it. Like you can't do Judaism alone, which was another thing that early on was a big culture shift for me. That's a great point. Okay. I'm going to like totally shift. Okay. I've actually been saving up this take for talking with you and I want to know what you think about this. Judaism's an ethnicity and converts aren't real. Send tweet. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to know what's gone wrong in American life in the 20th and eventually the 21st century, you need to look to the two biggest moments when the Exodus story appeared in American pop culture. Okay, ready for this? The Ten Commandments and the Prince of Egypt. The second of which, by the way, I have uh, memorized. (laughs) So both Cecil B. DeMille and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who's the man behind DreamWorks and was Mm. the guy who made the Prince of Egypt happen, they both believe the Exodus story had something critical to say to America. But DeMille understood that you couldn't possibly tell the story of the Exodus of freedom 
without also telling the story of the Ten Commandments, right? Of obligation and the basics of civilization that the Ten Commandments propose. So there's a whole scene where you hear all the Ten Commandments and there's a drama around Sinai. And this was the America DeMille believed in, one that actually stood for something, you know, in his case, especially in the ideological battle against communism. But in general, America stands for something, a set of mm -hmm. like positive propositions. But by the time you get to the late 90s, the Prince of Egypt movie, which is supposed to be like an animated remake of the Ten Commandments, that's how it was pitched. It only tells the story of the Exodus. In the last like 10 seconds of the movie, you see Moses holding the Ten Commandments, but that's it. You don't even hear what they say, because by the late 90s, America had really given up on actually standing for something. And it simply embraced the notion that we can and should just all be whatever we want to be. And there aren't any substantive commitments that hold us together. So what do you think? Could we even tell any of the Exodus story today in American mm. pop culture? And have we lost the sense of common American purpose? That's my hot take. <laughs> Asking me that, you know the answer. Like, you're, <laughs> yes, of course we've lost that common sense of purpose. And I think the fall of religiosity is part of that loss of faith in common structures, loss of faith in common history and common narratives. Like that's what being Jewish is in a lot of ways, right? It's a faith in a common narrative. And one thing that modern politics have been really effective at doing, modern leftist politics have been really effective at doing is deconstructing, right? You're, you're taught to deconstruct a close read, to deconstruct common narratives. Like I read Howard Zinn and spent more time thinking about that as a kid than anything sort of about the positive American story. And even if Howard Zinn is more factually right, does that build a functional, happier, better community? I don't know. I mean, I guess this gets to another question I really wanted to ask you, which is, you put it so well just now, we've entered into an era of deconstruction of story. If you think about the great virtue of biblical thought, which carried in directly to American thought in the American experiment, it's that, you know, Greek thought is a system, Hebrew thought is a story. Mm. The way that you actually make meaningful change, the way you get them to do big, brave, courageous things is through story. It's through poetry, not prose. You know, if you asked me, what does a journalist do? The phrase that we have in contemporary English is you write stories. But I feel like we've entered into an era, as you've just said, where journalists see their job as like deconstructing and demolishing stories. And as someone who is in that profession, right, how do you see the, the role of storytelling and how that relates to where we are in the American project? Ooh. I think about it with myself all the time because it's tricky because I both see the enormous benefit of telling compelling stories that bind us together, but I also have a particular skill set of doing send-ups and doing investigations and doing things that right. probably don't bind us together and right. reporting on things that are probably troubling. So I don't know if my work is going to be, or if journalism ever can be the thing that unites and binds us. And even the fact that we would think that journalism could unite and bind us is a sign of like how few common national structures are left that we trust. We shouldn't be looking to a newspaper to be our moral clarity or our guiding beacon. That should be our faith. That should be our family. That should be our community. That should be a million other places. Although that's kind of an old school view of it. Honestly, among the modern progressive media world, there is an idea that journalism actually very much should be telling a compelling, cohesive, moral story to its readers and that we should be guiding people and that we have access to a sort of moral vision that we should be helping our readers 
I know that I'm an idiot and I don't have access to that vision, which is why I'm converting and joining like an old faith, right? Like, <laughs> uh, and also why I see my work as hopefully not ideological. I see it as very separate from my converting and my home and my community. I think people looking to journalism to help them with moral quandaries is not a healthy thing for our society. I love it. And I completely agree. And I think, you know, because of that, it's worth thinking about who are supposed to be or who should be the storytellers in American life. And I suppose, this is, you know, this is my last question. It's become fashionable in some corners to either lament or cheer the destruction of sort of like, broadly speaking, the Protestant consensus in American life, where there's a civic religion, but it's fueled by a particular brand of Puritan or Calvinist descended Protestantism or sort of Great Awakening style evangelicalism in American life. There's like widespread acceptance that that consensus has been destroyed mm -hmm. and it's probably not coming back. You know, one very popular diagnosis is, well, that's it. That's it for religion in American life. I think that's wrong, but I wonder what comes next. Well, yeah, people crave it. We need it. But I think that's why you see the rise of QAnon. I think that's why you see the rise of a sort of orthodox, woke philosophy on the left. I think people crave rules. They want to submit a little bit. It's like, what's that Bob Dylan song? You're going to serve somebody. That's right. <laughs> people want to give up their freedom and want to be part of a structure. They want to be part of a thing that tells them how to live a good life and that tells them what to do when someone messes up and that tells them what to do when a million things happen that happen in life. Like we talked about at the start. What do you do when your parent passes away? What do you do when your kid turns 13? What do you do in these situations? People want answers. And so I think that's why you're seeing the rise of these strange pseudo-religious movements. And QAnon's a religion, and you could see woke orthodoxy as a religious movement. That's right. They're forms of Gnosticism or Marcionism, right? Essentially is what they are. Right? QAnon is Gnosticism and woke orthodoxy is Marcionism. That's basically what it is. Is it possible to knit together kind of a coalition of tradition? You're never going to get back like the full Protestant consensus, but you have strong Christian communities, you know, Catholic communities, Jewish communities, Muslim communities, other traditional communities that I feel like are some code more right, some code more left in the contemporary spectrum. Mm. But would it be possible to knit together a coalition of tradition, local community, you know, common goodness out of those kinds of communities? Of course. That's what I'm banking on. That's why I haven't yet bought a bunker in New Zealand. I think um, the hope that a rational, reasonable, moderate America will prevail, we all have to have that hope. But, but what would it look like? I mean, when I think about Judaism, when I think about what I'm trying to do with the blog and stuff, I think part of it is being more open to converts, is being more open to new people joining or to spouses joining or to helping more people live more Jewishly, because I think it's a really good way to live. I think in some ways, actually, and this is a little bit of digression, but the work from home trend could end up being good for this because people are, again, enmeshed in their communities, their physical communities where they live and they work and they walk around. And now there's a sense of like, I am part of my neighborhood in a way that you don't have if you're gone for 10 hours every day. And that could bring back some element of kind of neighborhood church and all that. But I have hope right now because I see among, even among my friends, a sense that we're missing this, that we're missing these old traditions, that maybe there was some wisdom there. 
And I think our parents' generation very much, I'm a little different because my mom's quite devout, but in general, my parents' generation really abandoned religion and didn't teach us as kids a lot about it. Most of my friends didn't grow up going to church at all. So it's not totally our fault, like the millennials' fault that this has been lost. But I think there is a movement now to reclaim tradition and religiosity and ritual. Do you find that you're having like a lot of seekers respond to it in that way? It's been amazing. Tell me about it. So I want to start like Converts Corner where I'm going to print essays by converts or people who are thinking about converting or who are in the process. And then we'll, we'll print them in the blog and then also on tablet. And wow. And we'll get, you know, Barrel do free editing because I just set her to work. Efficient, efficient. <laughs> efficient. But yeah, I mean, the messages I've gotten are incredible. I think there aren't a lot of places where you read Jewish convert voices. And it's something that's not really talked about. Among Jews, there's a sense that it's rude to ask. And I think most young Jews have been taught it's quite rude to ask a convert like when they converted or anything about it, which is fair because I, I think it's taught as like that's questioning their Judaism. And so it's not really discussed conversion and converts and your converthoodness. But I think it should be. I think it's really interesting and fun. And like, if there's no shame within Judaism about being a convert, then there should be no shame about talking about conversion and about the process and about, you know, wishing that your husband would convert. So anyways, I'm getting a lot of notes like that from people who are like, I've never written about my conversion before, or my husband, I've been talking for a long time about him converting or really touching stuff. Amen. That's amazing. I've been speaking with Nellie Bowles. Thank you so much for joining me. Everyone, read Chosen by Choice, subscribe, support. It's good to support awesome things. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. You've probably heard that religion in America is on the decline. And in a technical sense, there's some truth to that. But think about how many signs there are in American life, some good and some terrible, that people are searching desperately for meaning and transcendence. And think, like Nellie said, how many people are finding out this year just how precious local community is, and just how important and meaningful time-tested ritual is. I truly believe the future will belong to religion, to beautiful ancient truths and thick communities. So let's do our best in the here and now to be worthy of that future. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you like what you heard, then the best thing you can do is give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do, and if you review us on iTunes, hit me up on Twitter so I can let the world know how awesome you are. So that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.